You're listening to Tell Me More, a podcast for amplifying the work of graduate students. I'm your host, Wilfredo Flores, or just Will. This is a show where we ask graduate students a singular question, tell me more about their work, ideas, and more. Before we get into the episode, a quick note. Since recording the episode, Dr. Ichokiyuk has since graduated with her PhD and they are now an incoming assistant professor at Virginia Tech University. So with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Hi there, welcome to Tell Me More, where we chat with graduate students about their work, ideas, and more. In this episode, I'm chatting with Kena Ulok Ichoki Yuk, a PhD candidate in technical communication and rhetoric at Utah State University. So welcome, Kena. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Will. Um, thank you. Yes. So I am a PhD candidate at Utah State University, like you said, and I study technical communication and rhetoric with a real focus on social justice, um, particularly thinking about uh, knowledge legitimation of marginalized populations and their knowledges um, and concerns, issues, frameworks, whatever, just kind of like, I don't know, people just need to do better. That's what I study. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for joining me today. So you're here today to talk to us about an article draft on historical Inuit narratives about subsistence practices as a way to learn about climate change. Can you please tell me more about that? Thanks. Yeah, it, it's something I'm writing right now. It's due. You know how you like kind of write something right before it's due, but you have all these intentions the whole year prior. Like, you know, you're like... I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to that I'm gonna get to that so I have this like pages of notes or weird links um, but basically this this article or this chapter is for an edited collection about climate change and technical communication um, edited by Sean Williams and uh, basically it is a well it's going to be <laughs> it's it's go like speaking yeah. yeah let's speak it into the universe it's going to be yeah. an amazing <laughs> discussion <laughs> about um about narratives from my people so basically you know i studied environmental science as an undergraduate and so my background hasn't always been in the humanities it's been more on the science side and i've also you know spent a huge part of my life um, working with and you know talking to like being involved in the climate sciences community and environmental sciences community so um, and my dad was an, an activist for or uh, an act yeah he would probably be like an activist Kane I'm like what what you saying but no yeah he I, I'm gonna categorize him as an activist um, he's a, he was an activist for uh, indigenous peoples being um, getting a seat at the table when it comes to discussions of climate change in, in our regions um, before you know a lot of people just like didn't 
consider the ideas, perspectives, and expertise of Inuit people, especially when talking about how climate change affects Inuit and Arctic communities. And so my, my dad, mm -hmm. Caleb Pungawi, was really involved in that. So I grew up with, I grew up with like a bunch of people coming to our house all the time, like reporters, scientists, all sorts of stuff, coming in and interviewing my dad and just kind of like watching us, like doing this whole video taping our lives to see if it looks good on TV, you know? It was very weird. So that that actually kind of got me on this other trajectory of the of the knowledge of legitimation that and and also like identity and agency and identity um, when it comes to to research and and uh, co-production of knowledge. But what so this chapter when it's in full bloom, we'll discuss <laughs> we'll discuss um, this book that my great uncle wrote. Um, my mom, she's from Norvik, Alaska, and uh, her dad's oldest brother, so my grandfather's brother, um, wrote a book in the seventies called Epani Eskimos, don't say that word yourself. So Epani Eskimos, A Cycle of Life and Nature. And, um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's really cool. His name is Kignyak or his name is like James Wells. Kignyak is, was his, what he was known in our tribe. And, mm -hmm. uh, he did it, it, this book, it says in the jacket, it offers, this book offers a full course in environmental education to anyone wishing to learn to subsist off the land in the old ways in Arctic Alaska. And so this is this like mm. cool thing that's been in our family and it's out of print now. And I, um, so I've, I've read it a few times and basically it's month by month, like January through December, of activities, subsistence activities that happen around Norvik, Alaska, like on the Kobuk River in Northwest Alaska. And it is, um, it describes all these different shenanigans <laughs> and um, things that people would do related to subsistence. But when I, when I read it with this like science, you know, Western trained science mind, right? I thought mm -hmm. to myself, oh, okay. Um, Gignac, he like keeps talking about uh, bears in all these different air, like t like months and what the bears are doing and what people are doing, you know, in relation to the bears. Also ptarmigan, also like geese, like all these different animals. And I thought to myself, this is really interesting because we do have a lot of folklore um, narratives, right, talking about hunting and subsistence because that's kind of part of our a huge part of our culture and I thought well I wonder if I could take those subsistence activities and chart them in a way for example or like ice even just or just in relation to like so ice in relation to like what bears are doing and I could think mm -hmm. about like the conditions of ice related to the activities of bears back in the early 20th century when he's he's discussing like traditional ways from like 1905 or something because he at the time when he wrote it he was an elder 
and um, he was probably born early, like early 1900s, somewhere around there. And so I, I thought, well, that would be really a cool way to use these narratives, right? Um, these these non-fictional narratives, and and try to extract some information about. Uh, what was what was the general climate or what was the expectations of, of timing because that's everything was very cyclical and like at this time we do this nowadays uh, mm -hmm. it's not the same the ice is really different um, the birds when they come is different the grasses when that support the birds when they the migratory birds are coming up and blooming in different times are going to seed at different times so like so this food source from those grasses are different so it's like this real like there's a way to to look at this now that was my like intentional like the intention of this research when I started it and then you know you start the research and you go okay yeah like I had a really great idea but how the hell do I right. do it like <laughs> yeah what, what like you know what i mean that classic oh this could have been this is like a major project but i thought it was going to be a quick little thing um yeah no yeah. so that's that's kind of my you know i get like big ideas and then i go oh and reality smacks me so so yeah as it often does <laughs> yeah so that's that's kind of like this that's kind of the foreground of this work that i'm doing writing right now um is actually organizing and researching right now. And can I tell you the big conundrum with it? Yeah, go for it. You can talk about whatever you want. Thank you. So here's the big conundrum. When, so I'm writing about Inuit perspectives of climate change and traditional narratives to talk about our local environment, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about like, how is a research article um framed what is it what are typical parts right and there's generally this like lit review well in technical communication at least in my field and in other fields people expect you to frame your perspective based on uh what others in the field have been already saying right this article is basically saying hey we have lots of knowledge we've been charting this using story for all this time so like, why do I need like this internal struggle is like, I really don't want to frame it from these like Western academic perspectives that are basically the dominant perspectives in the field of TPC right, right now, you know, especially when it comes to climate change or environment stuff. And so mm -hmm. I like, how do I put, how do I at once position my people as experts of the lands around them and the climate like in the perspectives of science around them them like themselves as scientists while having to first frame that whole situation from the perspective of basically white scholars right i'm sick of that move i'm sick of it yeah and it reminds me a lot of what kathleen absalom wrote in kandasawin um about indigenous knowledge and western science and how the former is often subjugated by the latter, even by the way that research itself operates. So yeah, I totally, uh, well, I don't get your conundrum because it's beyond like my, my scope, but I understand, yeah, because it's an issue that I had as well. 
at least in my own research, and I don't like want to talk about it because it's your episode, but trying to frame queer and trans people of color talking about their sexual health as experts about their sexual health when people are like, your health literacy level is low, so you're probably going to get HIV, whatever. Let's just focus on these other people. So, <laughs> yes, I get that. It's, it's a weird way of trying to frame community knowledge in a way that treats it valid without having to subjugate it to this, like, framework from these other people who are like, mm, this is not, she's not valid enough. <laughs> Gentle listener, what was happening while Will was talking about all this is my face reacting to... <laughs> the basic BS that he's having to experience and, and, and do his research as well. There was lots of like me rolling my eyes at, at, <laughs> at the academy. There was lots of me sticking out my tongue and making like a gag face. So just so you, just because y'all can't see yeah, the, what is going on. The silence doesn't mean anything. <laughs> The silence, the silence is like it, it's, it, there's a lot of commiseration happening on my side, you yeah. know, and here's the real truth, right? Here's what it is. The way academia is still set up, right? The, and even though they try to pretend, oh, yeah, no, we're like diversity and include we're so anti-racist, oh, right? And I'm, I'm <laughs> maybe I sound too whatever, but what, you know, is like. Basically, everything needs to be filtered through whiteness. Like, you want to say something's true? Let's filter it through whiteness and then we'll test it. That's how we test it. And, right. and that's the way knowledge production works. And, you know, thinking about co-production of knowledge is, is an important thing. And, and also indigenous-led like research, in my case, versus indigenous-driven research. Um, those distinctions, they sound like um, minute, but they're very big. And, you know, I, so my work with knowledge legitimation, like that is, is basically the crux mm -hmm. of what I'm trying to do is saying back off, you know, if you, if, if you want to, like you say you want um, marginalized knowledges, like knowledge is coming from marginalized communities, right, to be um, valued then value it. Right, like accept it at, not face value, but like accept it as it is rather than running it through any kind of litmus test or validation checklist. Like uh, we need these four things to be touched on in this, this kind of schema. And if it doesn't, then it's not valid enough or something like that. Yeah, like I've got to cite like three or four white guys first. Right. Do you know what I mean? In order to make my, my stuff pass review and um you know what like i've i've actually I've, I've pushed against that in a lot of my other work and and it's worked so far um one thing if any listeners are um are wondering like well how do you like how do you get around that here's how you get around it you talk to the editor directly mm. and you say hey and you tell them like the, the what you're trying to do or in my case I write about it in the manuscript itself right. and I put it like and so then when the reviewers are reading it and going well why didn't you cite blah 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 right then they're 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 uh, I guess they just see or recognize um, what I'm trying to do for what it is versus like why hasn't 
why haven't they read X, Y, and Z? It's like, yeah, I have read X, Y, and Z. Right. But, and I've learned from it, thanks. But what I'm trying to say is is not like, just because X, Y, and Z or whoever, right? Authors A, B, and C, whoever, have like talked about climate change in general, doesn't mean it's the same, what they're talking about at all, like literal, like relates to what I'm trying to talk about. Right. Like it's not, but the way that the way citation works in our field, and you and I talk about citation, yeah. you know what I mean? We like both think about it. It's the way it works in our field basically centers whiteness, no matter what, or centers because it centers the canon. Mm -hmm. But the canon was established through whiteness, and um, resistance to that is what this generation now is really trying to work on right. and finding ways to resist. And ways to resist is you calling upon allies. And in my case is like contacting the editor and saying, I'm gonna be doing this move. You might see notes about it from the reviewers, but this is what I'm trying to do. Mm. And, um, and so, because ultimately it's the editors, not the reviewers that determine what you do need to do and not do. Right. So that's that's a technique or a a tactic that one can use to resist. Right. Yeah, and I think I think editors, well, hopefully a lot of editors would be amenable to that kind of move because it has to happen because if it doesn't it's just the same old same old. Like it's the same status quo, so if there's an editor listening to this, hopefully there is. That's my hope for this podcast. Uh, please take these words to heart, wherever you are, listener, nameless listener out there. Yeah, that's excellent. So have you thought about, well, not excellent, because it's not an excellent thing, but what you've said is excellent. <laughs> um, so have you thought about how to get through this conundrum within the article itself, outside of the tactic of reaching, reaching out to editors as like a, a viable strategy that those of us attendant to citation politics can, can adapt? Well, luckily I come, I'm writing from an indigenous rhetorics perspective, which has a whole component of sovereignty um, built mm -hmm. in. So thinking about indigenous sovereignty and sovereignty of um, our knowledges, right? There's a, there's a, a precedent for people um, for, for refusal. Right right, to adhere to Western norms. And then um, there's also just, there's a, you know, an anti-colonial like push that I can, that I can, I can, I can take. So it's, it's kind of like circumlocution, right? In a lot of ways where I'm going, first we're gonna talk about this and then we're gonna go around and around and around and this is why I'm not doing it. Do you know what I mean? And then, so it's kind of like I have a little tangent that has to happen and you know a lot of fields have had to do those tangents those justifications in text right and then then it becomes taken up up by other scholars and um and validated and then that little tangent doesn't have to happen we're still in that little segue tangent where i'm like and here's about knowledge legitimation sovereignty of knowledges so don't you know, don't try to colonize my work right. by making me, you know, filter it through whiteness. Well, the same moves like in technical communication. So my field, right, there, there's this whole social justice arm turn that has happened. And 
a lot of manuscripts going up until like 2018 or more, you know, later have like, if you read any kind of social justice turn, like where they're really talking about social justice, there's a section where they're like linking social justice to technical communication in that in every article about that. So they have to take, you know, 500 words of their space, right? Because it's all about space. Seven, you have like 7,500 words. So you got to take mm -hmm. 500 words of that to to make that move of saying this relates to technical communication, social justice. Well, today you don't have to do that anymore because people have done the work consistently and other scholars have validated it. So gentle ally scholar um, audience members, <laughs> right? This is the work you can do. The work you can do is when you, um, when you notice people making these moves, you can validate those moves in your own work, mm. right? You can validate the, these kind of moves towards uh, knowledge sovereignty and legitimation that other people are doing and, um, and help make it so people aren't having to explain themselves why, why knowledge legitimation or sovereignty is important when talking, in my case, about indigenous perspectives and um and, and and the refusal i do to filter them through whiteness right awesome one thing that i really like about this piece that i'm writing it is an application of a lot of work that other scholars in my field especially natasha jones mm -hmm. is doing centering narrative as um, theory building in technical communication I don't have to do that work of, of justifying right. the use of narrative because um, she's done that multiple times. So right. like I was saying before about people validating and um, moves that people are making and normalizing them within the way academic practice works, it's um, those moves are really important and I'm really grateful to those who have done that work. Similarly, um, Andrea Riley Muckovitz mm -hmm. has done a lot of work um, thinking about stories as theory. And, and so have a lot of other indigenous thinkers. Um, Patricia Hill Collins has done a lot of work um, with black feminist thought and mm -hmm. positioning experiences and narratives of black women um, as theory. Right. It's like, how do we deal with the world this is theoretical and so like this this is a framework that we can look at so I, I really have a you know I was talking earlier I don't want it to sound like my indebtedness doesn't exist because it does um, the parts that I'm pushing against is not um, is not is not I don't want to like sound like I don't want to acknowledge people before me doing these this work because I do acknowledge um, um, people before me. I just don't want to have to filter my work through whiteness right. in order for it to seem valid. And um, there's a distinction there. Right. And so that's, that's, that's what I'm, I'm happy about is, is using narrative because narrative is it's such a powerful communication technique. Uh, so when do you think readers could, or readers, <laughs> listeners uh, who will become readers might expect your work to be published? 
Well, the first wave of some of my publications are coming out in this May. So I have a, um, I have a, a piece that I think sets up this one that I'm working on now, um, called Inibé Le Cousade, um, and that's the short title, and I forget the long title, but it's coming out in an edited collection in May um, about social justice and tech com, edited by Rebecca Walton and Godwin Agboka. And so mm. it, it does a lot of, it does some of this work um, and use, thinking about the sovereign right of refusal and those different things. This piece um, that I'm writing for this edited collection, well, it has to go through all sorts of review first, right? But right. It's, you know, I had an accepted proposal. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. So it doesn't mean that it's, it's necessarily going to get published. But if it does go through all those things and everything runs smoothly, I think it is going to be like late spring 2022 is what okay. I'm anticipating. But yeah, keep, keep an eye out for some of my, my work coming out. Some of the stuff is going to be a little like I have, you know, a bunch of tech, techish kind of stuff where I look at corpus analysis and then I have all these like culturally rhetoric stuff. And then I, um, I do some pretty stinging critiques of the decolonial turn, um, because mm. people tend to forget that indigenous people are, are, are at the, at the yeah. indigenous land rematriation and sovereignty and all that stuff yeah. tends to be in the in the heart of decolonial frameworks and i mean that that does not to say that other other groups have been colonized and whatever i'm just talking about here in north america in general like what people are like the, the conversations that we're mm -hmm. having um and so thinking about Tuckin Yang's um, 2012 critique of, of, the, of decolonial being just basically a metaphor for social justice kind right. of things is, is really important, especially in the social justice turn where everybody's looking for alternative frameworks in order to kind of um, ride that wave right. of you know, popular wave or whatever it is. And so I, um, I, I have a co-author, Brianne Matheson, and we've been really looking at that closely. Um, and so that, that's, that's when some of my work's coming out. And I, uh, you know, I want to encourage your readers to, or listeners, I want to <laughs> encourage your listeners to, uh, to, um, you know, the, the publication process in academia is just not necessarily fair and it's not necessarily easy uh, mm. and it's not necessarily straightforward either and you know I I'm really fortunate to work for a journal I'm the managing editor of technical communication quarterly and so I have this uh, so I, I've I can see both sides you know because I'm a graduate student with with relatively little experience writing um, academic publication type prose, right? I'm, I'm learning, but then I'm also witnessing um, other scholars, some of them senior scholars, also grappling with the same thing. So it's not like there's a, it's the learning curve is um, long and steady. And, mm -hmm. and so just to have, um, have patience for where you are um, in your writing process, you know, nothing like, 
trust me, things that come in for publication that are accepted are not are sometimes kind of messy still, you know, and that's where good copy editing and that's where all that stuff kind of comes in. That's when the editors really do the editing. And so just have some um, to take heart in in the process and also do not be afraid to reach out to the editor in chief and um, and ask about your idea and get a little mentoring so that's that's those are the things that like I would like to like share that I've learned that you know there's um, and, and if people are kind of jerks to you if editors are whatever then um, that's a red flag and skip like look for somewhere right. else to publish your work you're worth more than that yeah so right so there's that other part because basically, here's the deal. You are volunteering to do free labor and act yeah. like knowledge production, right? For the sake of these journals, for sake of their, that live behind a paywall, right? That, that, that generate income for, that you will not receive. But so, right. you know, you like, writers authors of these publications are contributing are are offering um mm -hmm. a beautiful and necessary and free service so um understanding that you are one of the stakeholders and a valued stakeholder is really important because sometimes that is not conveyed enough Thank you for your time. This was an excellent chat. I'm so excited to learn about your work and to see where it's going and to see what it comes out. So do you have any social media that you'd like to plug or a website that you would like to share? Sure. I mean, so my last name is kind of hard to spell. I do have a last, I do have a website and a scholar website that is uh, my last name, I-T-C-H-U-A-Q-I-Y-A-Q, chokyuk.com. Um, but it's also linked on my Twitter. Um, you can follow me on my Twitter for my my hot takes. I don't know, you know, <laughs> it, you may or may not like it. I get a little salty, but then I'm also like kind and loving. So it's just, you get a, a full range of Kena. I'm not very edited about who I present on my on my Twitter. And that's um, at Kena Itch, C-A-N-A-I-T-C-H. And yeah, you can follow me for frank uh, personal confessions <laughs> and also, um, <laughs> and also, you know, um, candid, uh, I guess, reactions to the BS that I recognize in academia. And, and I also talk about my work and I talk about those different things, but um, yeah, so if you're interested in that, that would be cool. Awesome. I will hyperlink everything. And thank you again for your time. Thanks, Will. I appreciate you listening and thank you for this. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about this and other episodes at tellmemorepod.com, where you'll also find transcripts for each episode. The opening and closing theme song is Meter by Slow Alarm, music licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike license, and special thanks to Slow Alarm for providing the music free of charge. 
You can learn more about Slow Alarm at nulltealrecords.blogspot.com. Be well.